come now to the scripture that you uh, bow with me to pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we are amazed that we hold in our hands in one shape or another, one way or another, your word to us. How can that be? The God of the universe is so personal as well to write to us, to write down that which is true that we may carry with us in our hands and read with our eyes put in our minds all that it might transform our very lives to know you. May we, we never get over what this book is. So I pray that even now you would open it to us in a way that enlightens and causes us to know you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I want to read verses 1 through 8. Psalm 119, please. Hear the word of God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole hearts, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my way may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Uh, I want, if God will help me, to take up portions of Psalm 119 this this summer, I say portions because I won't cover all of it, 176 verses, and portions because I think there's a primary theme here that we can get a hold of reasonably well with uh, just eight or nine or seven or something like that sermons. Plus, of course, I'll be in and out during the summer as I regret, but uh, need to be gone a bit for uh, denominational meetings and then they make me rest. And so I'll take a little time off, I trust, for that. And, uh, and so I won't have all summer, but some of the summer anyway, to, to work through various portions of, of Psalm 119. It's a wonderful psalm, obviously, as they all are. Uh, it's in this book we call the Book of Psalms or the Psalter, which is a unique kind of book in all of the Scripture. Um, unique in the sense that it's poetry, others parts of scripture poetry as well, but it's poetry, so we have to be aware of that. We realize there'll be lots of figurative language, lots of, uh, of, of very expressive language, so we'll have to really work to get at the, at the guts of it, at the heart of it, what's this really communicating to us. But, but part of the unique sense of the Psalms is that it's, it's, it's intended, it seems to be, to be expressions of the hearts of people to God. As they write it. Now you and I express our hearts to God all the time, I suspect. But but what makes this very special to us is that these expressions of heart to God are instructive for us because they've been retained by God in the scripture, inspired by him, even expired by him, breathed out by him, uh, so that they're infallible expressions of heart. And so we can learn from them. 
It's filled with hymns and prayers, and, and thus it's called the prayer book or the hymn book of the, of the scripture, most especially of the Old Covenant. And so from these psalms, we learn how to sing, we learn how to praise, we learn how to, to pray. And what's fascinating here is they're written by a few people, but written by men who are in covenant with God, in relationship with him, who, who know him, who live their lives in the context of God's promises, God's covenant, God's agreement, God's working in their lives and the lives of the community. And they're real people living real lives. They struggle with exactly the same things that you and I struggle with. And so if we wonder, how do I express this struggle to God? We learn here. And, and, and how, who is God in the midst of this struggle? We learn that here. And so we can learn a lot of lessons. So it shortcuts for us sometimes. We go, oh, I feel this. Oh, I don't need to. <laughs> I feel this. Oh, this is a wrong feeling before God. Oh, I feel this. This is how to express this before God. And so we, we learn that in the context of, of, of the Psalter, the context of these psalms. And you see, never do these psalmists communicate with God, reflect upon God, speak to God, think about him in merely theological terms or philosophical terms or coldly philosophical theological terms at least. Always it's very concrete. They make their statements of confusion and confessions, their pleas and their praises to a real living God. When they know is imminent, when they know is there, when they know is listening, when they know is hearing, when they know is responding to them because they're in covenant with him and he's made promises to them to be their God and that they would be his people. And so that's the kind of sense that we get here. And so we learn from this, these psalmists. Now as we come to this Psalm 119, we find that it's very, very thoughtfully, very, very carefully done. You may know that it's an acrostic psalm, meaning that it has 22 sections because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And each verse in each section begins with a word that begins with the same letter. So this first one is, is Aleph, if you may have it there, which is the, the, the first eight uh, verses. Each verse begins with a word that has the first letter of the Hebrew al- alphabet, Aleph. And so it's very thoughtfully done, if you can think of how that would be to, to do it. In English, it would be that we would have 26 sections, each one section for each letter of the alphabet. And the first section, every verse, every expression, would begin with a word that began with the letter A. And so you can only picture that in your mind, how beautiful that would be and the end result, but, but how difficult that would be to write, to, to, to write coherently, to write this poetry in such a way that it, it's so beautifully done and so artistically done, so thoughtfully done. So this isn't something that took place overnight. This is something that took place over time as he thought it through. Each section thoughtfully laid out in this acrostic. Not only that, as we come to this particular psalm, there's no identification as to who has written it. It doesn't say a psalm of David or a psalm of Moses or a psalm of anyone else. It it just simply begins. And so we don't know who it is, but it's certainly one who is is a mature one. It's certainly one who knows God, certainly one who's lived out the struggles of life. You get the sense that his hands are worn, his back is bent, his, his face is wrinkled. <laughs> Could be me. Um, and uh, one who has, who has lived with God. 
And so we must pay attention to him. And in the midst of all that, of course, we remember it's in the scripture. So it's infallible. It's God's inerrant word. It's, it's instructive for us. It's normative to us. We can trust this psalmist. We can trust him to teach us all of that and that which is, is true. Um, and his testimony is this. That if you study the very word of God, if you meditate upon it, if you live it out, that you will be blessed. After all is said and done, after, after, after everything shakes out, he says the key to all of life in living under God is to follow after his word. In fact, we can see just in these first eight verses that I read that uh, he's concentrating upon the law of God. He uses various synonyms. Notice um, in verse 1, he speaks of the law of the Lord. In verse 2, he speaks of God's testimonies. In verse 3, he speaks of God's ways. In verse 4, he speaks of God's precepts. In verse 5, he speaks of God's statutes. In verse 6, he speaks of God's commandments. In verse 7, he speaks of God's righteous rules. In verse 8, he speaks of God's statutes again. In fact, if you read through all 176 verses, you'll be hard-pressed to find more than one or two verses that do not have a reference, a direct reference to the word of God. It's amazing because that's on his mind. On his mind is this, I want people to get this. I want people to understand that the way to live in God is to follow after his ways. The way to live a real life, a real blessed life is is to follow after God and to obey him joyfully from the heart. That's the key here. And so if you want to know anything about that, he says that's that's it. Now each of these words for the, the law of God, the scripture, the word of God, um, as, a, as a bit of a nuance, we won't get too hung up on those nuances generally because it also seems that he's using these expressions relatively synonymously. But when he speaks of the law of God as he does in verse 1 of this particular section I read, he's speaking of the Torah or the whole of the law of God saying this is it, this is the way of God. This, is, this comes from the sovereign creator of everything. His way, his law, follow after it. When he speaks of his testimonies, a testimony is a witness. And he's saying this testimony is the very witness of God about God. It's his testimony. This is God's testimony to what is true, holy, righteous living. What life really is. This is God's testimony to that. I I can tell you what life is to be. That would be my testimony about that. This is God's witness to that. If you want to know what God thinks about life, this is it. He says you'll find it contained in this law. His precepts all the way down to the details. Precept by precept by precept. Detail after detail after detail. It isn't just the whole of it, but it's every speck of it. It's every detail of it. He speaks of his statutes and he speaks of God's decrees, these statutes which are binding to us. This is binding. He speaks of his commandments. He says God has the authority to rule our lives. He's the king. He lays out commands for us to obey. These rules are righteous. These are his righteous rules or his righteous judgment you see which means that everything everything is judged by this law this is the standard of all the universe there is no other so you can see the intensity the carefulness with which this psalmist lays out and there's a hook the first three verses of this 
particular section I read, verses 1, 2, and 3 from Psalm 119, are a bit different than all the other verses because these verses, unique to this psalm, speak to us. Most of the others, perhaps all of the others, speak to God, us to God. These speak to us. So he's kind of laying it out. He's kind of giving us an introduction. This is kind of his hook. He says, if you're going to read the rest of this, I've got I to bring you in. And so here's how I'm going to do that. I'm going to hook you with this. I'm going to ask you the question, do you want to live a blessed life? There probably aren't too many uh, advertisements, too many commercials that we have. We look on TV, any Super Bowl commercials that start out by saying, do you want to live the blessed life? <laughs> but all of them are trying to answer the question of what is the blessed life. They're trying to get you there to buy their product to say, "This, if you buy my product, you'll live a blessed life. You'll be happy. You'll be content. You'll be satisfied. No, not only that, but, but you'll be envied by all of your friends because you have this product. Now we all know that's superficial, although we all buy those products. We all know that's superficial. We all know that well, that won't happen, but we all know that that's really, in a sense, what they're luring us into. What they're, what they're trying to, 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 to sell us isn't that particular product, but this product leads to something else. And what this product does is it leads to this life that is satisfied and content and wonderful and great and all of that. You'll be happy if you buy this product so much so that all of your friends will want to be you. Right? Can I tell you, that's exactly what this psalmist is offering. But it's not superficial and it's not temporal, it's eternal. It'll last, it's real. He says, if you want to live a life that's content, if you want to live a life that's satisfied, if you want to live a life that's full, if you want to be able to look back at the end of your life and say, I've lived life, then my life hasn't just been a game of trivial pursuit, it's been real then listen to me. That's what he's saying. Now we know when we watch commercials and, we, and we, we, we are offered the blessed life by any sort of superficial or temporal kinds of means, we, we know that there's difficulties with that. We, we have this sense, uh, first of all, all they're promising is for a moment to change our circumstances, to change our condition. But we know that bad things happen all the time. Difficult things happen all the time to us. And so we have in our mind, yeah, this might help for a while, but it's going to break. This might help for a while, but, but what happens when I don't have that? And, and I can't afford that right now. So if that's what's necessary for the blessed life, I'm really in trouble because I, I can't grasp it. And I really know that even if I have all this stuff... That there's difficulties that I'm going to face, circumstances that I'm going to face, that these things can, can, can kind of only oh, cover over, help for the moment. I'm going to face real relational problems. I'm going to face real financial problems. I'm going to face real health problems. There's going to be real political problems in the world. And, and, and these things might help me for an hour or two or might ease the pain, but, but they can't really deal with it. Isn't there something in life that can help me live blessed regardless of circumstances? Not so much rise up above them, but live in the midst of them and still be safe and secure. Live in the midst of them and still be content. Live in the midst of them and still have a sense of joy. Live in the midst of them and still have a sense of peace. Because no matter what else is promised to us, we all know that we're all going to die. 
and there's this, this, this sense that echoes in our mind, whether we have the words of Jesus there or not, but there's this sense that echoes in our minds that Jesus has really pinpointed, really for every human being, because I think everyone thinks about this. When he asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? See, when he said that, I think it resonated with everyone. When people hear that, and I share this with people from time to time who don't know the Lord. It's a good, uh, at least, if nothing else, it's a conversation stopper on an airplane when you want to get some other work done. Uh, and so, because um, if they want to talk about that, I want to talk. If they don't want to talk about that, then, you know, I've got a million things to do. But, uh, um, uh, so, so that whole idea, I think it resonates in the souls of people. There's this sense about us that we say, what if... All of this is for naught. Not only that, but what if, at the end of the day, I lose the very essence of humanity? I lose the very essence of who I am. I lose my own soul. That's in us to think it. And when Jesus put that, he, he put it in extreme terms. He put us now. Uh, he said, think about this. I'm not talking about the person who doesn't have anything. I don't have the, I'm not talking about the person that, that nobody wants to be. I'm talking about the person that everybody wants to be. I'm talking about the person that everybody envies. I'm talking about the person that everybody looks at and says, I want to be that guy because he has the whole world. He has everything I could ever imagine. We're talking about a person with a good marriage, good kids, financial security, Respect from everyone. He's saying, what happens if you have all of that, and yet at the end of the day, you lose your soul? Psalmist is saying, you want to know how not to live that kind of life? Where at the end of the day, you have it all, but not your soul. Where it's lost. He says, that's the blessed life. So that's the hook that he uses. He said, blessed are those. And you you should want to see this. Not only that, he's a covenant man. And and by that I mean in the context of the Old Old Testament. He's a person who knows God by way of God's promises, this covenant relationship. It it began, really, uh, in its best detail, with Abraham. We see it carried through by Moses. We see it even in the days of David. We see these covenant promises of, of God. And, and, and those in the covenant were to be people who were blessed, not cursed. So he's understanding this as well as the opposite of being this one who is blessed is this one who is cursed. And the blessed one is the person who lives in the very presence of God. The great benediction in Numbers in chapter 6 Uh, It's the benediction that the priest would pronounce upon the people. And he would pronounce this benediction after the burnt offering had been made, after the sin offering had been made, and after the peace offering had been made. In other words, he's saying, after your sins are forgiven and you're at peace with God, you live in his presence and he receives and accepts you. He says, now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That is the very presence of God, his face. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That is, look upon you, not away from you, and give you peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron that when they pronounced this benediction, This blessing, the very blessing of God, verse 27 in Numbers chapter 6. He says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. In other words, my blessing 
A blessed person is one who has the very name of God upon them. My blessing is, the, is to the people who live in my presence. So the psalmist is saying, you want to live in the very presence of God. With his face turned towards you. With his shining countenance upon you. Not turned away, but towards you. You, you, you want him to keep you. You want, you, you want his grace. You want peace. Oh, this is the blessed life. Now, quickly, I know you're warm. People spend thousands of dollars to get warm. Right? They go to the beach. They sweat. Get sand in places you don't want to get sand in. So look at that. You're just pleasantly warm. Just relax. He says, now listen. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. So you want to live the blessed life, live the blameless life. And we go, oh, I'm in trouble. Because notice how he puts blameless here. This is Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. It repeats itself in various ways to clarify its meaning. And so blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That's what it means to be blameless, to walk in the law of the Lord. This Torah, this, this whole way of God, you're committed to that. The blameless person is committed to following after God's law, to following after God's way. That's his life. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, the, the, the witness of God about God. Uh, blessed people are those who keep God's way, who seek him with their whole heart. It isn't just a matter of outward form, but it's something on the inside. It's something in the heart. It's something that says, this is my life. I desire this. I know that this is the source of my joy to follow after God. I know there is no other way. Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. That's the blameless life. Now, on the one hand, none of us can be blameless. We all know that. But on the other hand, for those in covenant with God, they were to live this life of blamelessness. You might remember that when God made covenant with Abraham, he said, Genesis 17, you were to walk blameless before me. Now, we know that Abraham wasn't sinless. So what did it mean in the context of the covenant to be blameless even though you were a sinner? To be blameless even though you were one who continued to sin? It was this. It was that there, for, for reasons we know, one's heart has been changed so that you realize that real life is in God. And so this blamelessness is a life, if you will, of integrity. It's a life of honesty. It's a life that says, I know that I belong to God and I'm to follow after his ways. That's the desire of my heart. In fact, when I don't follow after his ways, then I realize that I've sinned against him. And I know that. And I'm sorry for that. And I repent. Because I know that when I don't obey, I'm on the wrong track. I've offended God. I'm out of the way of blessedness in that experiential sense. And so now I repent of my sin. That's what it means to live in covenant. That's what it means to live in this blameless, this blameless life. And you live in this relationship with God, always knowing that there is one blameless on your behalf. In the old covenant, it was just an animal varieties of animals who were unblemished who were blameless on the day of Passover you remember it was that unblemished lamb they were to take and kill and they all lived under the blood of this unblemished lamb this undefiled one stood for them thus they were passed over when judgment came they were seen as God as one unblemished even though they were sinners. 
And so they, they would know that. And so he says, this is how you're to live. Commit your heart, commit your life to follow after God. And then notice how he puts it. Verse 4. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. He said, now, be diligent about this. Be earnest about this. This is the focus of your life, to follow after God. Because God's precepts do not constrain us, but rather they free us. When God says, do not steal, that isn't to constrain us or to confine us. That's to free us, to live in the, in the freedom, the security of knowing that our possessions are safe. Can you imagine living in a world where no one steals anything? What that would be like? You would know that all your possessions are safe. That's living in freedom. When he says don't lie, that isn't to confine and constrain us, but that's to live in a, in a world of truth. That's to live in the security of knowing that when someone says yes, it means yes, and someone says no, it means no. Can you imagine living in the freedom of that kind of a world, a world of truth? When God says don't commit adultery, it isn't to confine us. It's to free us to live in the love of another. To live in the security of the love of another. Can you imagine if there was no adultery anywhere, if there was no wandering of mind, if there was no lustful thoughts, the kind of world one could live in, what marriage would be like when you could live totally secure in the love of another. This is freedom. He says, seek after this. That's a blessed life, diligently. He says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast and keeping your stat statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Notice in all of this, after being told that, that the way of blessedness is this blameless life to following after uh, God, he really begins then in verse 5 to pray. I mean, that's what verse 5 is as he begins. Verse 4 is a statement. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Okay, I get it. I understand. That's the blameless, blessed life is the life of obedience. But verse 5 begins with this short little prayer. Oh, <laughs> oh God, if that's the case, if that's the case, oh, please, work in such a way that my ways may be steadfast. I desire to live this life of blessedness. I desire to know you. I desire to live in your presence. I desire to honor you. I desire to know the security, the safety of being yours. I desire to have this, the, the satisfaction of knowing what real life is. And so, God, since that is the case, then I need to cry out to you that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your, your statutes. So he prays. All of this sends him to his knees because he knows his own life. He knows his own life. And here we're not talking about someone who's, who's, who's despicable. We're talking about someone who, who, who is mature in God. And even still he says, okay, this is the blessed life. God is calling me to a life of blamelessness. And, and even though I've walked with him and even though I've lived with him, still it's my prayer. It's still this drives me to my knees because I know in and of myself I'm incapable. And so he says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then, oh, if I keep your statutes... I shall not be put to shame. I won't be shamed by my own sin before you. Because my eyes having been fixed on all your commandments. And then he says, 
I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Verse 8, he brings it down to a sense of, of real resolve. He says, all right, this is my life. I will keep your statutes. You go, yes. And then that last expression, he says, do not utterly forsake me. Now remember, this is poetry. This is a deep expression of heart. But it really is an expression of heart. You would say, but, but, but Mr. Psalmist, God won't forsake you. He's promised to be with you. And the psalmist would say, I know, that wasn't my point. My point is this, that on the one hand, with all my might, I'll say, I'll keep your statutes. But on the other hand, I'm saying, but if God is not with me, it's impossible. So since my desire is passionate to keep his statutes with the same amount of passion and the same amount of rigor, I'm saying, but God, don't forsake me. On the one hand, because I know I'm going to fail at this whole statute-keeping thing. No matter how much I shout it, no matter how much I cling to it, no matter how much I desire it at the moment, I know. So when I sin, don't, please, forsake me. I hope you noticed the assurance that we had this morning as we, after we confessed our sin. It was from Psalm 32. And that's a psalm of David. There are two great confession psalms of David. One, Psalm 51, that we often read together as our, pray together as our um, psalm of confession. But Psalm 32 is another one. And, and they're about the same incident. They're about this time where David sinned against everybody pretty much. And he sinned against Bathsheba when he committed adultery with her. He sinned against her husband when he, sinned, when he had sexual intercourse with Uriah's wife. And he sinned against Uriah also when he had Uriah essentially killed. He sinned against the people. He sinned against God. He sinned against everyone. And you remember, he didn't quite get it initially. It took a while for this extent of his sin to sink in. The prophet Nathan had to come to him and sort of trick him into seeing the situation before him. And so David, after confessing his sin and receiving God's forgiveness, writes this verse 32, chapter, uh, chapter 32, verse 1. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, David said, I came clean, I saw it, and now I'm blessed. Amazingly so. So here this psalmist says, I'll keep your statutes. I won't commit adultery, but don't forsake me because I might. And don't forsake me because I'll need you to enable me to keep your statutes. For you see, in David's situation, in the time between his sin and he realized it, stuff was going on in his own life. Verse 3 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy against me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, he's saying, I didn't know your blessing. It was as if you turned your face against me because of my sin. And now I realize that's what I felt. That's what was happening in my own soul. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
That leads to verse 1 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He said, okay, I, I came honest before you. And in that moment, God's face shined upon him, if you will. In that moment, God lifted up his countenance upon him. At that moment, he knew the very grace of God. At that moment, he knew the very peace that came from God. So he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, God says to the psalmist. Verse 10, many of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David was restored to blamelessness before God. To live like Now, this isn't a salvation by works. This is a psalmist who's in covenant with God. Sins have been dealt with in the grand scale, and yet he's now living out his life before God. How, do one, how does one live knowing the blessing of God? How does one live in the midst of all kinds of circumstances, good and bad, and still be content? How does one live in all kinds of situations and still live in peace? How does one have all kinds of things happen and still have a measure of joy? How does all that take place to live blameless before the Lord. Now for us, in these days of new covenant, in these days since Jesus has come, we know this, that he is the blameless one who stands before us, and he is the very one in whom we stand. He's the very one whose blessing is upon us. Thus, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he can write this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us the blessed life in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places even as he chose, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In Christ, there we are, holy and blameless. This old covenant psalmist was holy and blameless in that undefiled lamb we are holy and blameless thus Colossians chapter 1 the apostle writes again verse 22 he that is Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him and then in that benediction in Jude upon which I personally live every day. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence with great joy, he will do that. And so as we stand blameless before the Lord, as we will be presented blameless before the Lord, how then are we to live (laughs) as those blameless Covered with his blood, yes, but even in our own hearts and minds desiring to follow, to follow after him. Thus, the apostle prays as he writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians in chapter 1, verse 9. 
Paul says, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. How do we know, it is, how, how do we know it's excellent? How do we know what to approve? And by knowing the very word of God. Therefore, again, in Philippians in chapter 2, verse 15, the apostle writes, let me, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Thus says Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 11, he gives them this benediction. Now may our God and Father himself, the Lord Jesus, direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints and his final blessing to them in this first letter chapter 5 verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. That's the way of blessedness. Consistent, of course, with our Lord Jesus. When he spoke of blessedness, what did he say? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. He said, those who realize that there's no other rule, there's no other rule other than the rule of the kingdom of God. That, that's the rule that should guide us. That's the rule that should, should be ours to desire, to be ruled by God, to follow after him. He says, when you realize that your way and every other way is simply spiritual bankruptcy, it leads to absolutely nothing, it leads to, to death, then you realize that then the only other way is the kingdom of God. Here it is. Follow after him. Blessed are those who mourn. Just like the psalmist, once understanding it's this way of blamelessness, it's this way of following after God, you, you begin to mourn. Why? Because you see your own inability. You see your own sin. You see your own offense against God. And so Jesus said, the blessed life is one who understands, there's a person who understands his her spiritual bankruptcy, who mourns over sin one's own and the world's. Oh, he said, I'll I'll comfort you. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are not remembered by the Lord. And then he says, all right, then blessed is the one who is meek, that very one who's humbled by all of this and realizes the only life to live is the life to live under God, following after him. I'm not all that. He's all that. I'll follow after him. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. For he'll be filled. What does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? It means to desire the way of God. It means to follow after him. It means to, 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 to meditate upon his precepts, his words, so that... You live after him because you know nothing will satisfy other than that. So you seek after Christ who's the very righteousness of God and you say, please, clothe me with that. But, but, but also work that in me. 
that righteousness because I know there's no completion without righteousness. So you see what happens in the context of all of this. Just like the prophet Ezekiel said, God will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Just like the prophet Jeremiah said, I'll write my laws upon your heart. What he's done, you see, what God has done in his people as he's come by his spirit and given us life is that he's set our hearts to this blessedness, this blamelessness, and nothing else satisfies. And so we seek after Christ, the blameless one, to cover us. And we seek after his law that we may walk in his ways. Why? Because nothing else satisfies. And when we're walking in his ways, and we have a deep sense of assurance, a deep sense of assurance, that his blessing is upon us, and he says to us, I'll bless you and I'll keep you. He says, I'll make my face to shine upon you and I'll treat you with grace. I'll lift up my face, my countenance upon you and you'll always know peace with me. So you never have to worry. There's never anything between us. There's never any hostility. There's never any reason why you can't call upon me and I won't hear. There isn't any reason why I won't be watching and, 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 and helping you at every step of the way. There isn't any reason why then my sovereign control of all the universe and everything that I won't be for you as well. Knowing that is to know that no matter what happens, all is well. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that we'd know that, that you would enable us to diligently seek, know, follow your statutes. And please forgive us when we fail. And please be with us to enable us to obey. So that when we receive and know and walk in your blessing, other people will look at us and ask us about the hope that is in us because they'll realize that that is life. So please do all of that. We give you thanks for your watchful care over us and your concern for us and your help to us. We thank you for the birth of Alexander Joseph Locke, born to Jill and Paul, and we're grateful, God, for that, for that life Bless them in the richest, deepest sense of the word. We pray for our dear brother, Norm Holmskog, Father, that you would be with him and give him uh, a way to tolerate pain. And we pray that you would take it away even. And we continue to pray that you would bless in such a way that you would heal him of his cancer. Be with Beverly, Father, as she ministers to this one she has loved for decades. Thank you for their life. It is a blessed one. Those of us who know them want to be them when we grow up. So we thank you for their life. And Father, for our church, we pray that we would be a people that live diligently following after you and that nothing else would satisfy us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.